I want to share with you this morning about three individuals from the Old Testament of Scripture. I want to talk to you this morning about Elijah. Elijah has been on my mind a great deal lately. I'm drawn to the Scriptures dealing with the life of Elijah. I find myself wanting to know more about Elijah. I find there's not a lot of information about him. It appears as if he, he, he appears on the scene in the Old Testament about... 850, 860 years before Jesus was born. He appears on the scene in Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, suddenly, without very much information about his background. He was uh, a resident of Gilead. Gilead would be an area adjoining Israel, um, very next uh, door or near the desert area. He was a desert man living in a remote part of the of the region. Then I want to share with you this morning about Ahab, King Ahab, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and I want to talk about, uh, you've already guessed it, his wife's name is Jezebel. The word, the name Jezebel, Jezebel has become synonymous with something that was manifested in her character. So Elijah, Ahab, and Jezebel. It would be fitting to begin in the book of Malachi, you might like to join me as I read the fourth chapter. The fourth chapter of Malachi is the final chapter, also the final chapter of the Old Testament of Scripture. So we're going to read the very last few verses of the Old Testament of Scripture. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will stumble, or excuse me, will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so Elijah the prophet is mentioned by the prophet later on, the prophet Malachi, in the very final book of the Old Testament. And that Elijah would come before the great and notable day of the Lord. He would come as a restorer. He would um, come to prepare. Uh, the ministry of Elijah always seems to occur at a period of time where there is a preparation for a manifestation of God. Uh, we find that the angel Gabriel, when speaking to John the Baptist's father, said that John the Baptist would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He would not be Elijah, but he would come with a similar anointing as the anointing on Elijah. He would come in the spirit of, and power of Elijah, and he would, John the Baptist, he would restore the hearts of many in Israel to the Lord, and especially his ministry was to prepare the way for Messiah, to make his path straight, to prepare the hearts of the people for the manifestation of God, in this particular case, the manifestation of God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, 
interpretation that has existed now for, well, I would say almost from the very beginning. You can find it in the second century, third century, fourth century interpretation and understanding of the words of Malachi that Elijah the prophet would actually return at the very end of the age. There are different points of view on this, but I want to say that this understanding is not new. It's not unique to our age. It's not an understanding that just appeared in the last two or three hundred years. But this is an interpretation that has come from this passage and in the words of Jesus where um, you, you'll remember that they asked John the Baptist if he was Elijah and he said, I am not. John the Baptist meaning he, I'm not Elijah in person. But he did not deny that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus said that John the Baptist uh, fulfilled the prophecy that Elijah must come first before the Messiah would appear. And so Jesus said that in the ministry of John the Baptist, he fulfilled that. But then at the same, in the same area, Jesus said very carefully, but Elijah must come, or Elijah will come. But I say unto you, he has already come. Meaning the spirit and anointing of Elijah has come in John the Baptist, but he did not say that the person of Elijah had come at that point in time in fulfillment of this prophecy in Malachi. If we go back to the very early writings of the so-called Christian fathers of the church, or the fathers of the Christian church, we'll find that they believed, almost without exception, that Elijah, due to the miraculous way in which he left this world, would return to this world in an equally miraculous way. And when he returned before the second coming of Messiah, he would come largely to prepare the hearts of the Jewish people by a miraculous, awesomely powerful ministry that is referenced in the book of Revelations as Elijah being one of the unnamed two witnesses and perhaps Enoch being the other. In any event, this is an understanding that has existed for a very long time. It's not my purpose this morning to explore that. My purpose this morning is to look at the coming of Elijah and the state of the nation of Israel at the time in which he came and appeared. And I believe that there is a parallel between that time and today. And I want to share with you this morning the the parallel that I see. And I believe that we are, that the conditions are right in the age in which we live for a manifestation of God. I believe that we are nearing the second coming of Messiah. I believe that there will be and we're about to experience a manifestation of God in the earth. And again, before there has been a manifestation of God in the earth, uh, the ministry of Elijah has appeared. The anointing that Elijah had on him, the spirit and power of Elijah, did not leave when Elijah left. But that anointing was passed down to Elisha the prophet who would follow him and replace him in the earth. So the anointing of the spirit and power of Elijah has not left, but Elijah left. And the prophecy suggests that Elijah will return at some point in time. But the spirit and power of Elijah, the anointing that was on Elijah, the anointing that 
manifest in a manifestation of God in the earth. I believe we're at a period of time that is right for a manifestation of God, as it was in Israel when Elijah first appeared. Suddenly, unexpectedly, apparently from nowhere, he appeared and began to speak to Ahab, king of Israel. Let's share a little bit about Elijah. Again, as I've mentioned before, he came from a region called Gilead. Elijah was a man of the wilderness. He was a man of a Nazarite who had taken a Nazarite vow. It is likely that in his lineage, um, in his background, there was priestly tribe involved. We don't know precisely, but it is likely that that was the case. In any event, he grew up in the wilderness, and he grew up, he was a rough man, a rugged individual. He uh, wore very uh, rough clothing, leather clothing. If you see the way John the Baptist from the New Testament record of John the Baptist, the way John the Baptist appeared, the way he grew up in his training in the wilderness, it was identical to that of Elijah. The other thing about Elijah is that Elijah was prepared in secret. Elijah was prepared by God for his manifestation or for his appearing to Israel. Elijah was prepared in secret. In other words, as Elijah out in the wilderness in regions and no one really knew him and no one heard of him before, but he was there and God knew him and he knew God. In James, the inference in James is that there was an ability within Elijah to pray in a in a uh, effective way, fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous person avails much. And Elijah is referenced as one of these individuals who, who was known for fervent, effectual prayer that led to a rain being taken from the earth for a period of about three years. It didn't rain in Israel for a period of about three years. Great famine. But the inference, the inference from James is that this came as a consequence of the intercessory prayer of Elijah. So as we look at Elijah, and we, 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 we certainly get the impression from the totality of Scripture that the Spirit of God visited him at a very tender age. He was raised up as a Nazarite, meaning he abstained from all intoxicants, intoxicating beverages. He had a strict diet. He had a strict rules with regards to the cutting of his hair. didn't cut his hair. And other rules involved in Nazarite. But a Nazarite was an individual who was set apart unto God in a very unique way. Nazarite. And Elijah was a Nazarite. So now, here he is in the rugged mountainous region of Gilead. And he's communing with God. Fellowshipping with God. And he knows God. And he's a very rough, rugged man with tremendous physical strength and endurance. And it's laid upon his heart because he sees the state of Israel and the wickedness that has, has occurred in Israel. That they have, uh, they're worshiping Baal. That they have forgotten the God of their fathers. They have torn down his altars. They have destroyed the way of worship that God has ordained. And Elijah knows this. From a distance he sees it and knows it. And his heart cries out, O oh God, O oh God, must be a manifestation, God, O oh Lord God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Manifest yourself. It's laid upon his spirit to intercede and to pray. 
he knows that Baal has to do with the god of the uh, god of the skies or a god of the heavens. God, Baal is a false god, of course, but they believed that Baal was a god of the heavens. In other words, that Baal could give rain, Baal could prosper their crops. Worship then was all about what can you give me in terms of my crops and how can you bless me and how can you prosper me. See, we have to be very careful that our worship is not that kind of worship. That was basically the, the worship of Baal. So if they were pleased then that the rain was coming in its season, the sun was shining and temperatures were right in their season, the atmosphere was perfect for their crops, they would, they would attribute that to Baal. So the idea of praying then that there would be a cessation of rain, something that Baal apparently was lord of, but that Baal could do nothing to reverse, was part of what was laid upon the heart of Elijah. We infer this because of what's mentioned in both Old and New Testaments. This is a little bit about the man Elijah. Elijah would be used of the Lord for in an awesome way, as we know, in the manifestation of God to Israel. Elijah had a miraculous ministry. Elijah, in Elijah's ministry, he, was, he, he received miraculous provision. Remember how he was fed by the ravens when he hid himself by the book Sherith. And he hid himself there under the instructions of the Lord after he had appeared or made himself known to Ahab and said there would be no rain upon Israel until Elijah would say so. Then he left, of course, and Jezebel, Ahab's wife, which we'll talk about in a moment, Jezebel began to seek him out to have him destroyed and killed. And he went to this brook called Sharif, and he was secreted there during this famine, the first year of it. And the ravens came in the morning and in the evening, and they fed him bread and, and meat. So throughout the life of Elijah, he was nourished and provided for miraculously by the Lord. Now here's a key to the spirit and power of Elijah in terms of ministry. Is it possible for individuals today to experience something without being Elijah? But is it possible for individuals today to experience something of the spirit and power of Elijah? Because, you see, the spirit and power of Elijah is the spirit and power of God. It's not Elijah. It's God. But it's manifested in human beings. So is it possible for the spirit and power of Elijah to manifest in the earth today? And the answer to that is yes. Is it possible for you to have in your life something of that kind of anointing where you would be enabled to manifest God, the presence of God, the word of God? And the answer to that also is yes. And is there, is there likely to be and must there be a manifestation of this kind of ministry in this climate in which we live? And the answer also to that is yes. But to do that, you have to be a person that's from the outside. You have to be a person that comes from the outside. You have to be a person who knows God in secret. And you have to be a person who knows how to be fed or is fed by God. You have to have in your life God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God feed you personally. Don't get your feeding from books. Don't get your feeding from tapes. Don't get your feeding from 
just other individuals alone. They can be used from time to time. But get your feeding from God. Know what it is for the Lord to provide providentially for you. That's part, you see, of the key to the spirit and power of Elijah. So this is a little bit about Elijah. And the other thing about Elijah is that his ministry is to restore and to prepare. To restore means to restore a right approach to God. To restore how God has uh, designed for us to worship him. To restore that. And to prepare the way for the coming of Messiah. This is the ministry of Elijah. A little bit about Ahab, king of Israel. Ahab is an example of a man who is an Israelite, a Jewish man. He becomes king of Israel. And yet, he marries a woman who is a pagan, a worshiper of idols. Her father's name is Ethbal. He comes from the region of the Mediterranean, Sidon. She, uh, by all accounts, she's a very uh, beautiful young woman, very enticing. Um, knows how to attract a man, and yet she is a worshiper of Baal. And so against all the laws of God, Ahab uh, marries her and takes her as his wife. And in the meantime, what happens to Ahab is that Ahab becomes uh, hedonistic. There's a word for you. You know what a hedonist is? A hedonist is a person who believes uh, that the highest thing that we should seek for in this world is pleasure. That pleasure is the higher good. The highest good is pleasure. And the satisfaction of the senses... And so a hedonist is a person who says to themselves and believes fervently that their own pleasure and the satisfaction of their senses, you know, the senses, the natural senses, including the senses of sexuality and so on, sensuality, sexuality, that all of these senses need to be satisfied, no matter what they are or where they go or how depraved they might be from a biblical standpoint that the highest thing is the satisfaction of those. And Ahab becomes that kind of man and is drawn to this evil, cruel woman. But he is drawn to her because he is satisfying his senses and sensuality. When he does that, his, his manhood is corrupted. And when his manhood is corrupted, he means he loses perspective on what it means to be a man and he becomes like Esau in the sense that he sells his birthright for the satisfaction of his senses that's what Esau did and that's why the scripture says God says I Jacob have I loved Esau I have hated it's not personal but it's the idea of selling a birthright selling something that God has given you as a birthright but being willing to part with it to satisfy a natural desire that is right there in front of us. That's the kind of man that Ahab became. And as that kind of man, Ahab then very very much resembled what's happening to manhood today, right now. 
and I'm not saying this about every man, and what I'll say in a moment about Jezebel is not stated about every woman, but it's stated about the natural inclination and the direction that the natural order is taking with regard to manhood and with regard to womanhood. Manhood in our society is very much like Ahab. Manhood is willing to sell its leadership, sell its authority, in order for satisfaction of the senses, personal satisfaction, so very much hedonistic in terms of our age in which we live. Man has become, in our society today, a servant to a corrupt form of feminism. Feminism, a corruption of womanhood. I'm talking about a corrupt, a corrupt form of feminism is sweeping the globe. It has an evil root. It's the same evil root that was in Jezebel. There is no question that spirit is the same spirit. And because men have become, have gradually begun to lose their sense of what real manhood is, they're willing to sell their inheritance as a man in order for, to satisfy human sensuality and sexuality. And in so doing, men have become slaves and servants to a radical form of feminism. And so you see the belittling of men and manhood has become something that most young men now have difficulty finding an example of what a true man really is. A true man is not a, man, is not a person who goes around trying to satisfy his senses. A true man is a person that develops a relationship with God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God, and worships and fellowships with him, denies himself and prefers God in every aspect of his life. That's a true man. And that is an individual that true womanhood respect. Respect. Respect does not come from being an authoritarian person. Respect comes from being a godly person. Ahab was not that. And so what I'm saying this morning is that there is a parallel between the life of Abraham, or Ahab rather, the life of Ahab, the kind of man he became, what is manifested in his life as a puppet of his wife, Jezebel, very ungodly woman. There's, an ex there's a parallel between that and what has been happening for a number of years with regard to manhood, not every man, but the spirit of manhood in the world today. Share a little bit about Jezebel. Jezebel is an example of evil, false worship, and an evil and false heritage. Jezebel is an example of feminism that wants to be dominant and rule over men. Using any kind of sensual lure that is required in order to do so because if the men are in such a place that they have lost their manhood and all they want is the satisfaction of their, of their senses, then the Jezebels of this world know how to do that. They know how to give them what they want in order to get what they want in return. And what they want in return is to be dominant. There is no desire in Jezebel to be subject to her husband, as is stated way back in Genesis, 
that that the man would rule over the woman or the woman would be subject to the man. The idea of the natural desire would be to be subject to her husband. There is no such desire in Jezebel. In Jezebel, she wants to be dominant over her husband. So we see that manifested in Jezebel, and I'll give you one example. There came a time in Ahab's uh, life where there was a vineyard right next to his property. And the man who owned his, this vineyard, his name was Naboth. And so Ahab went to Naboth one day, and he said, Naboth, I'd like to buy your vineyard. I'll give you another one that's even better, or I'll just give you the money for it, whichever you prefer. And Naboth said, you know, it's in my family. It's been in my family for years and years. It's uh, an inheritance, and I can't part with it because I don't want to part with my inheritance. And Ahab, again, to show his perverted manhood, went to his palace, and he began to go into a depression, and he refused to eat. And Jezebel came and said, what, what's wrong with you? How come you, you, you know, you're in such a depression? And he told her the story of Naboth being unwilling to part with his vineyard and sell him this vineyard. And, Je- and Jezebel said, well, you're the king of Israel. In other words, just leave it to me. I'll look after this, and I'll get you the vineyard. So Jezebel sent letters to the uh, Jezreel, the place where Naboth lived. And she sent uh, letters to the administrative body there in Jezreel and said, have a feast and set Naboth up in the feast, and then put a couple of men who are willing to uh, lie about what Naboth says, and set them in there and have them come up afterwards and say, that he has blasphemed God and the king. So they got two men to do this. She, she put all this in her husband's name and sealed it with her husband, the king's seal. And so they took two men and they put them in there and they had these two men lie about Naboth and accuse him of blasphemy. And she said further in her information to them, then take him out and stone him. So they did that. They took Naboth out and they stoned him. And then she went to Ahab and said to him, Naboth is dead, rise up, cheer up, go and take possession of the vineyard. Right? That's Jezebel. And that's Ahab. And that's Jezebel, the destroyer, the corrupter, the dominant individual over her husband, and that is Ahab, the weak, vacillating, sensual, appeaser, servant to his wife and servant to feminism, That is the climate of those individuals, and that is the kind of climate into which Elijah suddenly appears and begins to speak, thus says the Lord. Now, can you see with me, without taking the analogy to some place that I don't intend it to go, because it doesn't apply to every woman, doesn't apply to every man, but it applies to the spirit of the world, and the rise of feminism and the corruption of it where womanhood is being corrupted. One of the um, early indicators of the corruption of of womanhood in our society was the area and the subject of abortion. And when the mentality and when the reasoning with regard to abortion, and I'm talking about abortion uh, because of a pregnancy or a child that didn't fit into people's plans, not because of some illness or disease, 
or something of that nature. And when this began to come into our culture at first, it was uh, not accepted because this was a crime. And then over a few generations, or really a couple of decades, two or three decades at the most, it has come to what it is today, where the mentality and the understanding of it is radically different. Well, when we begin to think that way with regards to such a vital subject, what happens to us in our society is is we begin to experience a darkening of our understanding. In other words, the light of truth begins to fade and dim. So a person who begins to believe that way with regards to something like abortion, which is taking a life not one's own, and the rationale that it's my body and I can do what I want with my body is insane because it is not my body. It is another life that I am bringing forth into the world. But it is the mentality that corrupts womanhood. The other, there are other examples of this kind of corruption. What I'm saying this morning is that this kind of corruption uh, comes into a society when there is an aberrant manifestation, an unnatural manifestation of manhood, an aberrant or unnatural manifestation of womanhood. Now we're in a period of time where the whole concept of of same-sex marriage and the ideology and the acceptance of the idea is just within a few years radically gaining traction to the point now where Supreme Courts are saying that this is lawful. The other thing is, and wait for this in just a little period of time, is that the teaching of the children within the educational system, I mean the young children in public school, teaching them the mindset and the philosophy of same-sex unions and marriages is something that is going to be compulsory education for the children in the public school systems. Now, this is Jezebel-like. This is Ahab-like. Men sitting back on their haunches. If you give me what I want, I don't really care. You go ahead and run things if you want to. Just give me what I want. And the sad part of that is the natural desire of fallen men is that the sensual satisfaction begins to descend into a corrupt level that has no bottom. It has no end. It just becomes more and more and more depraved in terms of what people think of natural desire or their own desires. They become more and more depraved. And that's the society in which we're living. And this society that I'm describing now this morning briefly, is a society where men and women, men and women, uncorrupted by the spirit of this age, are coming before God in prayer and saying, Oh God, manifest yourself in our society. Manifest yourself in Canada, in the United States, in Europe. Manifest yourself on St. Joseph Island. Oh God, only a manifestation of your power can turn this evil tide around. 
Now, where is that desire coming from to pray that way? It's coming from the Spirit of God. And that's exactly what happened with Elijah in the wilderness regions that he grew up and lived in. That's what happened with Elijah. And Elijah began to pray that way. And he began to say, the powers of this evil must be broken. And one of the ways that the power of this evil will be broken is to deny them the rain that they're praying to Baal for and thanking Baal for when it comes. So Baal, the power of Baal, must be broken. And that's exactly what happened in Elijah. And the power of God must be restored. And that is precisely what happened in the ministry of Elijah. And I'm saying this morning, and I believe, and I'm seeing this more clearly every day, that there is a parallel to be seen spiritually between that time, those individuals, and this time, and men today, and women today, and the corruption of our society today. Jezebel was a destroyer. Jezebel was a destroyer. Jezebel was a corrupter. Jezebel was a master manipulator to manipulate. And unfortunately, you see that manifested today. You see it being manifested in the corrupt form of womanhood in some cases that exist today. I'll put it this way to you this morning, that if a young woman today is receiving her food from the spirit of this world and the spirit of this age, if she is deriving her intellectual worldview and her sense of right and wrong and her sense of propriety from the spirit of this age that we are living in now, she will become most likely that kind of person. Remember we said as we began this morning that Elijah didn't receive his nourishment from those places. A young woman today growing up today in this world in which we live, if she receives her nourishment and her instruction and her sense of propriety from the word of God and the things of God and from the example of parents who know the Lord and from an example of grandparents who know the Lord, she learns early to put her trust in the Lord. She will be unhindered by that because she will not be feeding from that. And the man, the young man today, can become a man that God looks at and says, now there is a man after my own heart. Because he's not putting his body, he's not putting the lusts of his flesh. He's not putting human sexuality as some kind of God that he worships. He worships me. He loves my word. He loves my presence. When I come near in fellowship with him and he senses my presence, it has a profound and wonderful influence upon his interior life. And if he's committed any transgression, he quickly repents of it and confesses it. And he's brought to tears in my presence. He rejoices in my presence. He will be a man after my own heart, a real man. That's what he will be. Along with this comes a desire. Oh, Lord, again, as with Elijah, there must be a manifestation of the God of Israel. 
I want to close this morning or come to a close by saying to you that there must be a manifestation of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God that Elijah worshipped in the mountain country, the mountainous country of Gilead where he was raised, and where in this place of fellowship with God, this great desire to pray in such a way that it became fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous person that avails much, that's what's needed. If you sense that within you, then I'm going to say to you this morning, you sense that within you because the Lord is bringing that alive within you. There are things happening right now around us that are just crushing our hearts from a natural standpoint. They're so, uh, they're so difficult to bear. They're so unreasonable. They make no sense whatsoever. And it seems from a natural standpoint, there's not one thing, natural speaking, we can do about them. But that doesn't mean there's nothing that can be done about them. But there is nothing from a natural standpoint that we can do about them. That's why we must not resort to the natural standpoint. And that's why we must learn how to pray fervently, effectually. How do you pray fervently and effectually? It comes back to your diet. You have to have, spiritually speaking, you have to have the ravens come in the morning with bread and meat. And in the evening, you have to have the ravens come with bread and meat. And when you go to Zarephath, there has to be a widow there who has a little bit of meal and a little bit of oil. And you have to say, give me the food that this will prepare. And she says, that's all we've got left. We're going to eat it and die. Give it to me anyway. First, and then you have some later. And then the word of the Lord comes and says that the meal will not be exhausted and the oil will not be exhausted until the rain comes again. Thus says the Lord. And that's exactly what happens. So there, again, miraculous provision, right? Miraculous provision. And then when things get really difficult and you feel as if you've completed your work but haven't yet and you want to just go and lay down and die because you feel exhausted as Elijah felt. And then you lie down under a juniper tree or a broom tree and go to sleep in the desert. And then you're awakened as an angel of the Lord there. And the angel of the Lord says, rise up and eat. And there's bread and there's water to drink and there's bread to eat. And you eat the bread and you drink the water. Again, miraculous provision. And then you lie down to sleep again and wake up again and the angel says, rise up and eat. He eats some more of the bread that he's provided and the water that he's provided. And then you're able to go for a distance of 40 miles on the strength of that food. Now, spiritually speaking, what that means is that the food that the Lord God gives you allows you to do great and marvelous things. But natural food doesn't allow anything. So the needs that we have around us can only be met, including the needs in our families. And these things are not going to get better. In the natural standpoint, as we go ahead, they're going to become worse. They're going to become more and more demonic and depraved. And we're going to have more uh, issues like this cropping up than we have now but the darker it gets the brighter the light will shine for those who will do what we're talking about 
and the more awesome and more powerful the manifestation of God will be because the need will be greater than it's ever been before. There is coming a manifestation of God. There is coming a manifestation of God in the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, but there also is coming a manifestation of God before there is a great catching away of the church. There are details about the catching away of the church that I'm not completely uh, confident that I know yet, and I'm persuaded not to talk about things from theoretic in a theoretical way. What I've been sharing with you the last number of weeks is not coming because of I'm reading a book. It's not coming from any of those places. I, I love to study and I do study. But what I'm studying is not interpretations. When I study about Elijah, I'm studying about the history of Elijah and where he lived and so on and so forth, but I'm not studying interpretations. Because my sense is now, not that we shut ourselves away from others, but my sense is now that we need to know how to hear the Lord unfettered. You follow me? We need to know how to hear from God. We need to know what it's like to hear from the Lord and not be confused, is this really the Lord or is this brother or sister so-and-so that I've just read their book? I hadn't intended to share that with you, but I think maybe it's good to share it because sometimes we wonder, where do people get, what kind of influence are they sitting under? Where they get the, you know, what's influencing them to say, share the things they're saying? So therefore, I want to tell you that I have deliberately and, and willfully refrained from a lot of things that I have done in the past. What I sense happening, though, at the same time, is I sense the fellowship and the communion of Jesus to be much more vibrant and real and specific than ever before. And I want to walk humbly and cautiously, but in faith, in his presence going forward. I want to close this morning. You know, uh, I think I began this morning and I was so eager to share with you that I forgot to tell you what our subject was. (laughs) But it won't surprise you, I think, if I were to tell you that our subject this morning is an imperative. It's an imperative. And the imperative of our subject this morning is get ready. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Get ready. Imperative mood. Get ready. So, having forgotten to give you the very important subject at the beginning, let me give it to you right now at the end. And the reason I'm reminded, because right now at the very end, I have a song I want to close with. And the song is from a group called the King's Heralds. And you'll know what it is. It is, The Lord is Coming. Are you ready? Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God and in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for Coming, are you ready?
my brother, promises of God all are true. Jesus bought your life on Calvary's mountain, and soon he will come again for you. The Lord is coming, are you ready? The Lord is coming, are you ready? Would your heart be right?